hence all the water. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to read some from the book. And instead of uh, hunting and pecking through the book, I'm going to read off the paper, which I think is more useful. People. This has a uh, epigraph by Sartre. Hell is other people. Standing behind a bar, I often wondered if Sartre had tended in another life like this one. No doubt he'd spent more than one man's fair share of time in cafes and bistros, sipping libations with Simone and the existentialists, composing lyrics for a retelling of Aeschylus as a rock opera involving fascist oppression and a plague of flies. Real triumphs of the will censors failed to understand. It must have been hell for Simone, his bedding all those nubile groupies, despite protestations of open relationships and being above petty emotions like jealousy and rage, lust and revenge. Even a naked photo of her from behind by Nelson Algren, fresh from his bed at a washstand, professed they had moved on and were moral adults, despite the subtext of their letters from that time that indicated otherwise. If hell was a bar, they'd be in it, and so would Buster Keaton as he was photographed in a bar somewhere in Paris near the middle of a long line of champagne glasses, drinking his way from one end of the line to the other, an expression on his face like one of those Beckett characters half buried in trash near the end of time and there's nothing to do but go on. Well, anyone who doesn't know me, uh, I attended bar for 34 years. So if there's a familiarity in the theme, that has something to do with it. Um, one of my cohorts is sitting there, he's talking about, he, was, uh, <laughs> he probably did 30 years in the, in the same bar that I ended up in. I'm going to do a little Christmas poem. Uh, this is based on an anecdote uh, about Brendan Bayon, who used to do what he called the Stations of the Cross, which was his pub ball, uh, until he got thrown out of so many of the bars, he decided he couldn't do the cross anymore, he would just do the stations. <laughs> Twelve pubs of Christmas. Now this, is, this particular situation is based on a, a, a news article I read, so there is some truth to this. Last day's celebratory mood, outlining a liquid station of the cross, dressed in cratchit clothes before the Scrooge and Marley Christmas bonus checks, torn painter's pants in the rough work shirts, disposable everything for the long call home. Some have a six hour time limit, others four, staggered starts, stumbling finish. One team is on a short beer ration with baby Jamie sides, others tall stouts with depth charge sweeteners inside white lines and roll your eyes in the gents or on the road between stops, halfway to stretcher service and wheelchairs. Three quarters of the way to destination's end, their faces are a whiter shade of pale, look like 
death camp tourists one stop from the flame. Their designated driver has a hurts. <laughs> Sandy, but uh, I kind of modified this poem. <clears throat> the tag on our chest said Sandy, but if the name referred to the color of her hair, it was in another lifetime. She was way beyond anything like blonde now, built like a working hard stevedore, and what came out of a bottle for her was mother's milk, long neck, light. After an hour or so, she was well into a regiment of dead soldiers without help of a glass. Save you some dishes, she had said. Besides, I like to feel the neck in my hand. Reminds me of the, my first ex-husband. She was wearing a diamond-studded 300 brooch and matching rings. You have to earn these, son, the hard way, in the alleys. No speckled girly balls for Sandy. No, sir, she threw a black beauty and she threw it straight and hard. I could arm wrestle, too, with both arms. My second ex was an iron worker. Broke his wrist in five places, but it wasn't arm wrestling. <laughs> I'll do you for a beer. Nah, why bother? You'd only beat my ass and damage my ego. Next one's on me. Time the house for a drink anyway. Thought so, Sandy said. She was smiling, but not in a friendly way. Still, it was better than the alternative. Mm -hmm. uh, this poem is, uh, since we have a bowling theme, it's called Lady Bowlers in the Lounge. And there's this uh, myth of the, the um, that goes around the bar, especially lounges. I worked in a top 10 rated uh, steakhouse, it was a nightclub. They used to say, oh, the bus is gonna pull up from Syracuse any time now. <laughs> well, there was a summer in the late 70s where every single Saturday, there was a goddamn bus pulled up outside mm -hmm. of the restaurant, and these are the people that came out of it. Lady bowlers in the lounge. <laughs> they arrived in mini buses, twin seat vans, RVs and SUVs of all colors, sizes, and descriptions, wearing their black polyester blend short sleeve blouses, their names sewn on their right breast pockets, Marge, Shirley, Sandy, Dolores, Roxanne. Too tight above the knee dark shirt skirts, Butterflies tattooed on their ankles or on the back of their sunburnt necks. 40 pounds overweight, ordering black velvet Presbyterians, sipping as if they were sleek women, lounging in evening gowns, fondling pearls before the swine into their lives. Perfect 10 billboard fantasies, defiling all the back row dream highways of their lives. Or else, they are anorexic thin, chain-smoking menthol lights, drinking long neck buds without no gam glass, hubby's name tattooed in black on their bowling arm 
above the jailhouse cross, their dead eyes staring through the smoke-dense lounge at the bar TV, trying to hear the latest NASCAR results on the Sports Center, the West Coast edition, an hour to go before last call, and miles to go before she weeps. something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? You can see him off campus in some public place, wearing all the wrong clothes, tweed jacket with leather elbow patches, pressed jeans, white turtleneck hair, almost unruly, beard trimmed by a pro. He never has tattoos distinguishing marks of any kind. He may have been in a fight once upon a time, but not since he turned 13. Claims he has affairs and open marriage, but lacks the nerve. Expects his wife feels the same. Does not sense her discontent, the disconnect between what he thinks and what actually is. He drinks the best vintages, imported beers, unblended malts, but only in moderation, has tried all the current designer drugs, but secretly hates to lose self-control, claims to love classical jazz, but his sports car radio is set for country and western. Everything he writes is a carefully crafted lie, so well layered in verbiage and deceit, all the others revere and respect him as one of their own. Service people, men in the street, instinctively dislike and mistrust him, a fact he never either recognizes nor would understand if he did. I'm gonna change books, I have another um, collection coming out in April, I believe. Um, and it's mostly infrastic poems, and most of those are to photographs um, by various artists. And uh, one in particular, and not the famous one, um, a photographer I really like, uh, Robert Mapplethorpe. Um, he's a great portrait uh, artist. Uh, it's too bad he didn't do more. And a lot of still lifes are just amazing. Robert Maplethorpe's Patty. The walls she leaned against, pale and white, serious as a Picasso clown, a sideshow siren, hair a mess, disheveled after nights, sleeping raw and crazy. Images wild on the page and in her eyes, so vivid a camera cannot capture what is inside. The pictures she draws on the unseen walls between them and how he was wrapped in bondage to them, and all the pain he brought to bear on the wounds 
to the soft flowers on black velvet, orchids and calla lilies, and how night unveiled their lives a layer at a time. She is Salome receding, he and Orpheus looking back into the shadows, her shadows, his. another uh, maple portrait. I, I don't know if people are familiar with the photographer, Lisette Modell. Um, she's a cross between uh, George Gross and August Sander. Now, uh, George Gross is the grotesque, in between world wars, uh, art of uh, the corruption and the perversity of Burgermeisters. And August Sander did the same thing in photography, only without embellishment. It just was there and he saw it. Have you ever seen the photograph, Free Farmers on the Way to the Dance? That's an August Sander. Anyway, uh, she uh, comes out of that, that school of, of art and uh, is basically uh, taught Diane Orbitz. Maplethorpe's model, a shrewd interloper between old, lost worlds and new ones. Few actually take the time to see. Keen eye behind wide-rimmed glasses containing life studies of all the indiscreet pleasures of the middle class. Germany between world wars, a culture of self-defeat, paranoia, Grim excesses exposed on park benches, sidewalk cafes, outdoor concerts. The grossly overweight and indulgent, petty burgermeisters and housefrals, seamy undersides of everyday activities and hard life cafes, becoming Coney Island patrons, wallowing in the surf, all the seven beauties combined in one, Dolly nightmare scene. Giant, giant shadows that dwarf the men and women who cast them. These darkest black and white Freudian Hitchcock sequences becoming a tableau for a Lori Anderson slow tango with William S. Burroughs in living color. A home of the brave gone berserk and all the crazy Orson Welles interiors, camera angles, the refined and the pure, society's finest staggering into hell with half-filled martini glasses. After the happy hour is over, the fat ladies are silenced. The doorman is the usher into dining areas for the dead, tips accepted, double eagles for languorous wandering, unseeing eyes framed against a white brick wall, black shades drawn to minimize unwanted light, reflections of immortality in the merely mortal and the face that contains it all. That is an amazing picture of her. She also, when she came to the United States, did a whole gallery of photos on Coney Island people in the surf. It's just an amazing collection.
I'm just going to do one more from that collection. It's called, uh, if you know Hunter S. Thompson, you know who Ralph Steadman is. Ralph Steadman's Macbeth. After the nuclear war, and there's nothing left but one barely mobile man, stricken by radiation sickness, stumbling the last scorched acres of a killing zone, a burnt orange sky at his back, a broken cup in one hand for scooping tainted water from blood-fouled pools, a broken spear in the other for impaling blackbirds of prey, pried loose from primordial cave by a reckless savaging of the earth. Warrior face, a rubber mask melting from bones so brittle, they too shall soon return to the dust all things are made of. actually a movie, Femme Fatale, which isn't half bad, uh, but I did not actually uh, <coughs> uh, reference, I actually saw the movie after I wrote this poem, because I, you got to see the movie too. Right? It, um, Femme Fatale, you could meet one anywhere, a lounge maybe, where she stands leaning on the bar, one foot on the rail, bright red dress, slid up the thigh, showing a lot of leg like Kathleen Turner before the weight gain, cranking up the body heat. Or she would walk into your detective agency to report a missing husband in Act One who would turn up dead by Act Three, and a whole labyrinth of graft, corruption, and murder would be revealed by Act Five, like the insides of a cadaver used in an anatomy lesson, and the woman who had the most to lose, whom you love, would be dead at the wheel of a convertible while you watch, unable to prevent which mu what must happen next. Or she could be a seductress who killed, not so much for pleasure, but for profit, is a black widow in an off-the-shoulder dress who would deflect even the most moral man from his sense of right and wrong. Part Veronica Lake, part Mary Astor, part a blonde Rita Hayworth holding a gun she won't be afraid to use in a hall of mirrors like some demented lady from Shanghai on a kill or to be killed mission. Or she is the wife of a short order cook in a diner on the edge of some Death Valley desert, and she, like all the others, wants her husband dead, and before you know what happened, you are caught in a honey trap with a murder weapon in hand, and there's no way out, and you think, I'm in hell now, but it was a long, wonderful road to paradise getting there. Uh, one of my favorite 50s sci-fi movies, 
they decided that, uh, it's a toss-up, which is going to be more dangerous, the communist or the flying saucer. <laughs> so I did all these movies uh, about um, aliens, <laughs> really about communism. Um, so this probably has a uh, relevant political message to this day. <clears throat> it came from outer space. A screaming comes across the sky, not a Von Braun rocket, part of gravity's decomposing rainbow, not a meteor as authorities inevitably proclaim, but a cheesy, glow-in-the-dark, crash-landing spacecraft marooned in Arizona desert, watched by a stargazing couple on clear night, no one believes. They who go there, some kind of protoplasmic, one-eyed, see-through creature, able to body snatch humans, they replicate in form, but not in manner, hoping for low-profile helpers while repairing damaged ship. Xenophobic citizens, being human, seek a permanent solution, violence against the unknown, without information gathering, they mean no harm, but we, for the greater good, have no interest in explanation or arguments over intent versus accident. One man against all others aids their escape, not without fatal consequences, and life, more or less, goes on. The world was black and white in those days. Now we are blinded by color. Actually, this one isn't, and I don't think this is in Last Man Standing, but it, it, it goes with it. It could be in it. So, you have to buy it to find out. You have to buy it to find out. It's, a, it's called The Women of Troy, New York, and this is. Um, if you saw, uh, it was about a year ago, there was a woman uh, in the Times Union published uh, a whole bunch of black and white photos about all these uh, poor girls in, uh, in Troy. And this is what I got out of it. Scores of them and their friends in photo album montage, teenage and pregnant, even the ones with female lovers nestled close in hospital, maternity, room, bed, tongue-kissed and half-naked. And their moms, grandmothers in their 30s, though they look so much older. Concentration camp thin, all bones and fading, $5 tattoos. Black lungs from chain-smoking unluckies and skin-popping meth. Never smiling, no front teeth, no partial plates. Who could eat in a dump like this? Dozens of children in four filthy rooms, three and four-year-olds still nursing, underage moms sucking thumbs, lap grinding barely out of his teeth, predicate felon bow in between nickel and dime falls. All those girls of Troy, none of them mourning for heroes, Led in battle before the city on siege walls, with DOAs from bad dope deals, gang banging the wrong neighborhoods, the wrong side of the river, 
wrong time and place losers, or those shot carrying a concealed, refusing to yield to the man who cornered in poorly lit bad neighborhood night, their sisters, daughters, lovers, own one frock and it's black, already well-worn and fading. Most of these women, years before age of consent, all of them stamped, labeled, pigeonholed as half-breeds, white trash, two-bit whores, sluts, no future, no hope in a world of pain, lost for now, forever, these women of Troy. Wow. I'll close with these two. They have a musical theme, sort of. First one is uh, Karaoke Killers. Hmm. And this is uh, also based on a uh, news story that I read. <clears throat> In Malaysia, in the Philippines, in Thailand, eight killed, wasted, for singing John Denver's Take Me Home, Country Roads. <laughs> well, the article doesn't say whether it was the rendition or the actual choice of song that got them killed. In some states, singing along with John Denver, even in the privacy of your home, is a capital offense. <laughs> in Seattle, singing Coldplay off key can get your face rearranged at a bar by a woman. <laughs> in the Philippines, singing my way is a risky undertaking. Six dead and counting. 10 years of serial unsolved murders, all related to an old blue eyes too. Just think of all the clubs and bars in this country alone that sing, that song is sung in and what that could mean. Mass murderers with Sinatra t-shirts keep the songbook pure. Man, good thing the sex pistols are already dead. <laughs> I wonder, do the karaoke killers hang loose in clubs waiting for certain types of victims? Do they profile? Do they take requests? Walk on the wild side, eve of destruction, ballad of the green berets, black leather jackets, and motorcycle boots. <laughs> as an epigraph by Jessica Hagedorn, who's from the Philippines, so she lives in New York now. In my hometown, there's even a nightclub named Guernica, where they play nothing but dangerous music, atonal and dissonant, so strident, unmuffled ears bleed are assaulted by solo guitar riffs, percussive drum beats, organ blasts, killer sounds, one and all. The bouncers are all armed guards, uniformed like Nazis. 
No one dares to intrude, tries to leave once they are locked in for a night of danger and beauty, gangster love and heart-carving infarcations. The heat inside, light-inspired vision, tropical apparition, vivid as death squad, angels from hell with pilot's licenses, machine guns and bombs. In my town, there is a nightclub named Gurkha, where turf wars are fought and lost, where the innocents plead for mercy and are denied. In Guernica, I am the demon on the dance floor, the one with a coat of arms, blood spatters on a field of clay. Thank you.
three and a half years of submitting manuscripts before that was accepted. <laughs> and then there was a long dry period after that, too. But, uh, it took off in the 80s, uh, early 80s, when I started writing about Lawrence. All, all the stuff I had written, I never wrote about Lawrence. And I said, ah, who the hell wants to read about Lawrence? <laughs> now, were you, were you writing about bars before you worked in bars? Or is it no. just being a, a patron of bars? Or a fan? No, I never. Uh, well, I, I've been working in bars almost 10 years before I even thought of writing about being in a bar from a bartender's mm -hmm. point of view. I started, uh, I was at a workshop with, of all people, uh, Lynn Lifshin. And she really? said, uh, <laughs> she said uh, you should really write about bars. So I started writing a book about, I got laid off, and I probably wrote about 2,000 poems over the summer uh, oh, wow. uh, in three and a half months. I, I'm not kidding. They're, they're short, but short and skinny. But, uh, um, and I never stopped after that. It was the beginning of the 1980s. Of course, uh, Lynn hated the poems I wrote. <laughs> she liked the ones I wrote about my schizophrenic mother. Like so she encouraged the poems, but hated them at the same time. Right. Okay. Let's live. <laughs> so we say that you've been, you know, and I don't know how accurate it is, but I know whenever Mary Panza introduces you, the most published poet in America. No. Is, well, I might be in the top ten. Is that, okay, so how many, do you know how many publications I have no idea. No idea? I couldn't even guess. Is it in the hundreds? I'd say it's in the thousands. Thousands? Uh, <laughs> I could figure it out. But <laughs> well, that's kind of tedious. That's your homework assignment. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make it tedious. <laughs> I have it all written down. That's some graduate student's uh, dissertation. Yeah, that would be a great idea. Mm -hmm. So, and now, and then, so, so, you, so you went from being unemployed laid off. Right. Is that when you got into your quote-unquote, and in one of your many, as I said earlier, every bio is different. One of your bios that I have says your unchosen profession. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so was that it? Was that after you were unemployed? No, you know, I got another bar, oh uh, a bar job at a different bar. Uh, I actually ended up being a, a bar manager at a nightclub. A nightclub? A like nightclub. a dancing nightclub? Well, the restaurant slash nightclub. All right. Um, the, bar, the one I had been laid off at was, um, I was doing mostly banquets, and, mm -hmm. and it was a Ramada Inn. And um, I ended up working in a, a tavern for a while with that guy, with Mark <laughs> Harris. And, uh, uh, and uh, I said, you know, I, I'm tired of doing this. So I, I, Went with the boss over to the Italian Market Center, which was just starting off doing banquets. I did banquets there for a year. And then I got to the nightclubs. And then I went to another place after that. Mm -hmm. that that's 10 years before the last place I was at, 25 years. 25. And that was the Washington Tavern. And that was right down the road to Washington. Right. So 25 years. Now that place, I've only been there a couple of times. One time, you know, a couple of times for lunch. Completely <laughs> different, yeah. oh, different yeah. world. <laughs> and then a couple yeah. times at night, where I feel like I'm a criminal walking in the door. Yeah. So, what? 
I was a day what? guy. He was a night guy. So, so yeah. you you brought in the muscle and the and the security guards for night time. You were the muscle. Yeah. You were not the guy that patted me down <laughs> a couple times when I was there. <laughs> so, twenty five years in one spot now is how much of your your poetry came from that? I mean, from that job? Yeah, um, quite a bit actually. I, I made a pledge that uh, somewhere around 1980 that I would never write about the uh, place I worked in. So I immediately started writing about the place I worked in. <laughs> like all pledges, I, uh, you know, I would never write another poem about X subject and 2,000 poems later. You know, it's like, still the same subject. Yeah. Well, things happen, you know. I, mean, I had one book, and uh, this is not an exaggeration, that is. Uh, it was a summer that I was getting off at one of three bus stops, which I wouldn't decide which bus stop I was going to get at until just before the bus got there. And every time there was a poem standing there waiting for no matter which one of those three bus stops I was. Oh my God. And then I would walk down Quail Street, and uh, there would be all kinds of good things on Quail Street. <laughs> and I get to work, and there'd be all kinds of good things there. So I got a whole book out of that. From oh, I bet. I worked on, on Central Ave, I worked on Central yeah. Quail at WAMC. Oh, so a lot of poems about Central Quail. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a hotbed. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, coming right from Schenectady down there, that was probably a, a very usual style for you guys. Absolutely. Um, and, and probably the, the travel from Schenectady to Albany. Probably a lot of characters, a lot of poems coming from there as well. Absolutely. Uh, the infamous 55 poems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of what I haven't seen on the 55 books. I think murder and all uh, complete sexual act are the only two things I did not see. Completion. Partial. Partial. Never okay. beginning to end. Okay. <laughs> yeah, beginning. That was the first stop. <laughs> no, I was uh, coming up from downtown. <laughs> at the first, last bus out of Albany. Last bus out of Albany to Schenectady. Yep. That's a movie title right there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, any questions out here? Dan Wilcox, what do you well, got? Well, it's not really a question, I just want to clarify something. I yes. Think, I think that one of the facts that you were citing oh, about the most published poet came yeah. from a survey that was done by Fact Sheet 5, which was, this is a, right on the cusp of the internet, mm -hmm. on the late 80s. Whoa, 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 there was a time before the internet? <laughs> I, thought, I thought I invented the internet. <laughs> I was Al Gore. <laughs> yeah. And Backsheet 5, it actually came out of RPI in Troy, and it was a newsprint magazine format type zine that basically listed all the new, if you sent them your, your, your book or your journal or whatever, they listed Okay. It was like great free publishing service for it, and it was a great reference. And they did a survey one time of all these small press, and these were small press things, everything from photocopying to fairly sophisticated um, saddle stitch kind of thing. Um, they did a survey of all these magazines, and they had like the top five published poets in America or something like that. And three of them came out of all that. 
Really? I don't remember what order they were in. Right, well, Lipschitz always a She was probably first. Yeah, and then by far the most. And then Paul Wyman okay. and Al. And it was in that. And this was, I remember reading that. It, it may have been just before I moved up here, 86, 87. I'm not sure. But it was around that time. Paul Wyman. I read um, your editorial, your introduction in Misfit Magazine. Um, and if you haven't checked out Misfit Magazine, you have to check it out. It's one of the best. On, it's online only. It's online not, only. They don't want to spend any money on paper. I don't blame them. Um, Albany Poets. Misfit Magazine. It's at misfitmagazine.net. All right. Dot net. I remember these things. Um, and you talked about Paul and uh, hanging out with him. What are your, your fondest memories of him? Because it, he was before my time, unfortunately. Like I was just a, a, uh, a high school youngin. Well, we were fledglings in that time period. Yeah, you were out there. Yeah. You were at the QB2 readings. Um, but I never, I, I never met the guy. I met him actually once at a LARP fest when he was selling shares. Yeah, yeah. And but I didn't know I knew the name, knew the poetry from volume. If you want to buy a copy of volume, a great <laughs> CD, I have a case of them in the back of the car. Um, <laughs> but I remember hearing hearing the name, hearing the poems, I never met the man. I never, you know, now it's years later and I'm finally hearing the stories of, you know, driving up bus into the lake and, you know, all the stuff and, and, and doing readings naked, you know, so what uh, well, I just enjoyed sitting down, listening to him talk and tell stories about the crazy things he used to do when he was uh, a full-fledged maniac drinker. Uh, I, as I said in the article, I used to uh, have lunch with him well, probably once every two or three weeks for a couple of years. And uh, invariably, he'd come up with some crazy story that I'd never <laughs> heard of before that defies the imagining and uh, he never repeated himself and I was like God what a liar this guy is <laughs> but then he'd find out that uh, just about every single story he told me he checked out it was he's just an amazing guy uh, well Dan could tell you more about the uh, naked readings I only saw him do it twice <laughs> you knew if Paul came to a reading and he's wearing sweatpants <laughs> oh, no. you were in for a show and somewhere in that reading, he was going to drop the trial. And I've heard that, and that's why I've banned sweatpants. <laughs> just because of that. We don't want anything. We talked to Dan about it earlier tonight. Yeah. I don't know. You know I'll throw them We almost yeah. had to send him home to change. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that, that's amazing. I, and, and now I can't even imagine having poets do that. Well, he did it so that he would get up. Yeah. yeah, he have a poem, and he take off the pants, he take off his shirt, and stand there and read the poem. Take his clothes, go back in the audience, put them back on. Like our daughter does. Right. Okay. Yeah, like little kids do. Yeah. You just take yeah. off. Her two and a half year old daughter just yeah. takes off her clothes and does a little <laughs> speech <laughs> and then <laughs> and then goes to bed. Once in a while, there was a political content to it, like when he did it at Borders. Mm -hmm. After there was a reading out, some some other Borders, someplace else in the country where um, they told the poets they couldn't say 
fuck shit, whatever. Yeah. You know, and you know, it was a big uproar in the small press thing over it. And uh, so Paul read at home and one of those white boys screaming in borders where he took off his clothes in the middle of borders <laughs> and did not get arrested. No. And his just video underwear on? No. 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 Last time I saw him do it, he did it on the corner of Wales and Western in that. What, oh, Mother oh, Earth. Yes, yeah, it yes. used to be Mother Earth's Cafe. Yes. Mother Earth's Cafe yeah. with a front wheel. Yeah. yeah, he had two tattoos of lightning bolts on his head. And he ended up being an educator after this. Yeah. Well, he, all the time. He's a museum he educator. He's a museum educator. He's a museum educator. As doing tours. Is this, is, why, is this why we're fingerprinted now to be uh, <laughs> to be part of the education? They could not fire him. They could not. Oh, they, kids loved him. Kids loved him. And he went into different circles too, because like my father knew him, and my father is a biker. Like he knew him through oh, yeah, the biker yeah, circle. Yeah. So. Like I said, I was at a reading and this guy did this, and I was a teenager. And my father was like, "Oh yeah, that, that's the guy who drove the bus into the lake." Yeah, you know. Uh, and I was like, "How do you know this guy?" <laughs> oh, the uh, and his uh, wake. Uh, so many people from the state museum had so many stories. I didn't stay for all that, but it was fondly remembered. I remember once I bought one of his chapbooks in the gift shop. And it was an older lady who sold it to me, and she said, oh, Paul's such a wonderful guy. The kids love him, and uh, we never had anybody <laughs> that does it better than he does. Oh, okay. <clears throat> we got down in the dirt with the kids. Yeah, he did. But, he would yeah, pose with the wax. Um, he would pose in the museum yeah. in where the wax figures are, and he would sit very, very still. Yeah. So a group of kids would come. And they would all gather to hear the lecture, and they would think that they were looking at an exhibit, and then he would move. And the kids would lose it, like just from the very beginning. They would just like really freak out. And especially it was popular with the at risk kids who uh, uh, thought they were in for a drag of an afternoon, and all of a sudden they see Paul, and uh, wow, you know, this guy's different. This is going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, his stories are, uh, he told me once he was picked up in the morning driving the state bookmobile drunk with a gallon of wine in the back of the <laughs> And they towed the van from Central Park, uh, Washington Park in Albany, and uh, he didn't get arrested for that either. He said that the most miraculous thing was he never lost his job either. They never brought charges against him. They tried. State they tried. tried. How does this happen? I need, I need well, I don't think he can get away with that now. No, <laughs> I don't think he can. I don't think he can. So, you have a new book out, yeah. Last Man Standing. What does that mean? Uh, it's a bartender at the end of the night, <laughs> after, uh, in, the, in the poem, the, the title poem, there's a huge rumble, and uh, it gets crazy, and just cuts to the end after the fight's over, and the cops drag everybody away, and Lights are turned down, and just the bartender behind the bar with a split lip and black eye, and who knows what. He's the last man standing, he's got a pint in one hand and a broken shot glass in the other hand, and he's sipping out of it with a straw. That's the last man standing. And what number book is this? I don't know. I don't, I don't keep track of those either. 
the poem is there, uh, like the one I read before, uh, the first one I read in Lilith. That's pretty much, uh, I'm not going to do much to change that. Um, and that's pretty much the way it came out. You've got to fix uh, words here and there. But, uh, it's just the process, and the process is working for me right now. Mostly to the movies, though I did the, I cheated on that one. I, I usually have a movie in mind when I wrote, but that one I, I wrote the title. <laughs> and that Femme Fatale is on OpenPost.com. Yes. Cheap photo, yeah. I appreciate that, um, that you handwrite them first. I, I, I always do write I don't do that with prose. I type the prose is too tedious to, to but for, for all poems are first written in hand. Just the way it is. Mm -hmm. I don't like to type on no, the poor typewriters and all poets. Yeah, arthritic fingers. Yeah. From using a manual typewriter that weighs 63 pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, Don, you have a question? Yeah, I had a question because now I know that you are editing. You are, you know, uh, work with a journal. Right. Yeah, and I want to know what differences have you noticed from when you were sending stuff out and now being in your position being an editor? That's a good question. Um, I think I'm a sympathetic editor in, in the sense that Having done this so many times, and there are a lot of people who are sending stuff out that really have no business sending stuff out yet. <laughs> but, uh, um, I got just got something, in, but you don't want to tell the, uh, an 18 year old kid who's sending out his first work. That, Crush you know, their dreams. Yeah, just, you know, just, you don't even want to say it's not that good. You just want to say that as you read more and write more and get more experience, you'll find a better direction to go with your work. Uh, that's how I usually approach that. And I give a lot of feedback, which most editors don't. And uh, uh, I try to be constructive. I've only done one, two, I count on one hand, three, four times have I been uh, not necessarily constructive in, in the way I approach them. One guy didn't follow the rules. And he sent me 18 pages worth of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had somebody throw up Yeah, the I, have, I have a lot of editor questions for you. <laughs> so, uh, but, and it was annoying stuff, too. It wasn't really poetry, I don't think. But, so we had a little tiff. And another guy had, had uh, uh, a long-running feud, and he was trying to put one over on me, and I ended up putting it over him. But other than that, I, I generally... Uh, Offer constructive, try to be constructive. That's, it's really, as Tom said, you don't want to crush someone out. Who am I to tell somebody, you know, you should never write another word as long as you live? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Donald Justice does that, did that, and you know, I, I think that's counterproductive and, and unfortunate and cruel. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to be that kind of writer or editor. I, we actually, when we'll, we go through the Up the River Journal, we frequently call that the pile of broken dreams. Yeah. <laughs> when you, like, you're oh, rejecting sure. something, it's like, oh, we'll put it in the pile of broken dreams over here, you know? Like, it's hard. Uh, because thing, yeah. you feel that way when you're an editor oh, and sure. you get a submission and you, you're discarding it and somebody worked for yeah, that. And, and they feel that they're presenting that as, as their best it's work. A, right, it's and important it's to the person who wrote it, so you shouldn't treat it like trash. Absolutely not. So, and I don't do that. I, I hope I never do. Um, 
I was trying to think. Well, I, another thing I would do is that I, I'm pretty flexible about working with people, I think, who are close to getting a poem ready. I said, now, this is what I suggest. I'm not telling you to do this. But I, I like this better. And I'll give you an example of why and show you how I think this is better. And I'll leave it up to the writer. If you want to change something, fine. If you don't, that's fine. I just won't use it the way it is now. I mean, I'm, that's fair, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's up to the poet. It's a poet's poem. It's not my poem. Do you find that those poets are appreciative of that? Oh, uh, yeah. I've gotten, a matter of fact, I think Feedback? I've gotten uh, probably a, a hundred, I've been doing this for about three years, a uh, hundred notes back from people I've rejected when they're thanking me for. Uh, of the way I approached doing it. So I think they really are. It's really the only editor that ever said anything about my work before, or thank you for being so fast and courteous, or, or whatever. So yeah, I think, I think writers do appreciate it. Are you a sole editor, or are you working? I'm the only one who reads the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the other, there's two other editors. One's a, was a technical, and uh, she, they're, they're both poets, too, but they don't want to get involved in the reading. They said, I have the best bullshit <laughs> uh, and uh, the other guy does the art. So did, did you get that type of editorial advice when you were sending Occasionally, poems out? And, and I, I mentioned Martin Malone in particular, because he was my favorite editor. And uh, I was flattered to find out after he passed away that he told his daughter that I was one of his favorite poets. But he would be the kind of guy that even his rejection notices were the kind of thing you'd keep because he was funny. Yeah. Or, or he would say, you know, you really should spell this word like this instead of the way you did it. Or, uh, yeah. he, he would offer <laughs> some, you know, constructive. Next thing you know, you're buying a car. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> well, Marvin was cool. He's the one who gave, uh, one of the guys who gave Pinkowski uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Actually, Lipson is the one who encouraged me to send stuff to I didn't think I'd ever get in it, but I did end up publishing 21 poems in uh, the Wormwood, which I think is pretty cool. Wow. Uh, have, you, uh, have you published any, I, I can't remember, uh, have you published any of Lipshin's poems in Misfit? No, she won't send me <laughs> I think I have the distinction of being the only editor in the country that's never gotten a Lipshin poem. Right. Uh, I don't think the two of us are involved. We've had an ongoing dispute. I may be the only non-poet editor. Yeah. There you go. I, I don't want to go into it, but we've had a, a, a long-going dispute, personal dispute, that, um, and that's the reason. I think you should arm wrestle. Excuse me? Arm wrestle. And that's where the push-up challenge comes in. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Lim Lifshin. Sense from the ceiling. Oh, boy. Fireworks. Anyone else? Any other questions? What got you coming out to reading poems? We've talked about writing. What um, got you to like, because I know for myself, it was <coughs> in high school, my mother <coughs> saw an ad for the, <coughs> excuse me, the Borders open mic in the newspaper and said, you should go out to this. And I said, okay. Um, that's, it's all downhill from there. Um, so, uh, actually, you know, well, Weinman uh, had, was the first guy who ever uh, had me as a reader. He had, was doing this thing in a museum called Muse in the Museum, 
He had like 60 poets, all local poets that he invited. He'll give you 10 minutes to read among the exhibits of all the permanent exhibits. So he invited me, and I said, oh, cool. You know, I, I got the wigwam. And, uh, whoa, wigwam, yeah. That is the best place. Uh, no, because the only person that showed up was the woman who was reading two after me <laughs> and my wife. So it was not a prime location, but I got that out of the way. And the next year, I said, well, I went to walk around after I had read to my wife the next week. And um, walked around, and I saw Lynn. And a couple other people read on Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. It has the worst acoustics of any place I have seen before or since for reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, well, I want to do that. If I can read there, I can read anywhere. Because yes. uh, you got people in front of you. It's cavernous. And there's people behind you on two sides. Mm -hmm. And they're all looking at you. They have no idea why you're there or what you're doing. But I look at you. What's this animated dork doing? <laughs> <laughs> So I said, after that, I, I, I didn't read anywhere. Then uh, Tom Mattel started the uh, readings against the end of the world. And I was on the program for all 10 of those, so I, I missed a couple. But, um, um, and from there, uh, well, Dan started doing readings. And I, and I think I made it to the uh, queue a couple of times. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, there's a, a, a zillion readings. This is our first opening post presents. Give a big round of applause to Alan Catlin. Woo!